I'm not a big moviegoer, but um, it was Nikki's birthday uh, early this month, and I remembered. Uh, but it was her birthday, and so we went on a hot date uh, to see Top Gun Maverick. Who's seen Top Gun Maverick? Nice, there's a few supporters as well. Um, if you haven't, I'll let you know uh, what it's about. Um, still go and see it. I, I won't give away too much, but um, the, a mission is given to the US Navy uh, to destroy this unsanctioned uranium enrichment plant, uh, which sits in a deep depression at the end of a canyon. And to accomplish this mission, or rather to accomplish this mission uh, by destroying the target, they must fly through a canyon at extremely low altitude in order to fly under the radar and thus avoid detection and destruction by these surface-to-air missiles that line the canyon. Uh, it's an amazing scene, made more amazing by the fact that it's not computer-generated. The whole thing is actually filmed in fighter jets. Uh, Tom Cruise, uh, who can fly fighter jets, by the way, who, who knew that, and other actors were filmed while literally flying in F-18 Hornets at extremely low altitude through this canyon. I'm told that there was a lot of vomiting going on between takes. Now, why do I tell you this? Well, firstly, so you'll see the movie because it's well worth watching. But secondly, and more importantly, the idea of flying under the radar in order to avoid detection and destruction, I think is a good metaphor for how we often attempted to live our Christian lives in a culture that is increasingly hostile towards Christianity. It's tempting to want to fly under the radar, to avoid detection, to hide in our holy huddle, to not speak up as a Christian, or simply not to look any different from those around us in the wider community. It's a comfortable way. We just want to fit in. We just want to fly under the radar. Why do we do this? I think we, we actually do this, and we all do this from time to time, because we, we don't want to be ostracised. We don't, want to be, we don't want to be shamed. We don't want to be verbally attacked. We, we don't want to be harassed on social media for expressing a view that's different to our community. And so the question we're asking this morning is, how should I live, how should we live in an ever-increasing secular world? That is, as Christians, what does it look like to live in a society that sees us not as it did 20 years ago as the annoying and geeky Ned Flanders from The Simpsons, right? That's not the Christian anymore, but the dangerous and bigoted bad guys. Well, we're going to take a closer look at Matthew chapter 5 to help us answer this important question. But why don't I pray as we begin? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you are the God who speaks clearly to us. 
clearly to us today. And we pray that in your kindness, you might help us to see what it looks like to live our Christian lives in an ever-increasing secular world. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, Dougal walked us helpfully through the Beatitudes or the blessings that begin the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the word blessed could be translated as divine approval. And so what Jesus is saying is God's divine approval, his approval is on the poor in spirit, those who recognise their deep depravity and their inability to save themselves. Theirs, Jesus says, is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, the beatitude essentially describes the core characteristics of the followers of Jesus. And here in verse 13 to 16, we hear about the influence for good that Jesus' followers will have if they live out those core characteristics in the world. While they will be persecuted because of righteousness and people will say all kinds of evil against them, Jesus says, it is, it is the disciples calling to serve the world that is persecuting them. Point number one, you are the salt of the earth. And from verse 13, we read these words, you are the salt of the earth, Jesus says, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Well, what does salt do? Well, two primary things. It flavours food and it preserves food. But in the first century, it primarily would have been used for food preservation. And so in context, Jesus is saying the world is like a piece of meat that is going off. But you disciples, you are the salt that is preserving that piece of meat from going completely rotten. Your presence, Jesus says, is delaying its moral and spiritual decomposition. If the disciples of Jesus live out who they are, Jesus says that these norms of the Beatitudes that he's just spoken about, they will be an influence for good in their community. I note also as well that those metaphors of salt, and as we'll look at in a moment, light, they identify the distinctiveness of Christians from the world around them, just as much as salt preserves and food decays. As much as the light shines in contrast to the darkness. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said these words, the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It is then that the world is made to listen to a message though it may hate it at first. You are the salt of the earth, Jesus says. But then we see the condition, verse 13b, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Now, technically, you might be a science teacher here, but salt can't lose its saltiness. John Stott, in his commentary, helpfully highlights that in the first century, Israel, it's likely that a lot of the salt that was used 
was gained from the Dead Sea. What washed up on the shores was this white powdery stuff, sodium chloride or salt, predominantly. But off this powder, salt would likely have a more, would, would be the most soluble component and hence would easily be washed out. It might look like salt, but it neither tasted nor acted like salt anymore. Jesus' point is clear. There is a potential for Jesus' disciples to not be seen or noticed, to fly below the radar, thus failing to be the moral preservative for our rotting world. And if they do, they're actually, in Jesus' words, if they fail to do this, they're no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. That's a stark warning for Jesus' disciples as they hear this word and by implication for us. See, how do we keep persevering as Christians? How do we do that? Well, part of doing that is actually to keep living countercultural Christian lives in our world, to look different because we are different. Where the world will shame us, we are to love it. Uh, Jesus will say later in chapter 5, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Uh, in May 2018, Keziah Dom, a young Christian woman from Utah, uh, wore this traditional Chinese dress to her prom and then posted a photo on social media. And one offended young man posted a response that I can't say in church, but you know, you can kind of imagine what it might have been. But his post was liked by 200,000 people and retweeted 50,000 times. There was utter outrage at what this woman did. You see, in an online world in which anger and outrage are the norm, living as salt will look the opposite. It will look like not hating your enemy, but loving your enemy and praying for those who persecute you. And as a church, we can look so different You see, we are a community that are bound together by a common love, the love of Jesus for us. And unfortunately, sections of our society are bound together by a common hatred, a hatred of those who might think differently. But Jesus is blessed are the merciful showing mercy to an enemy bent on judgment and shaming. We can love them. How bizarre would that be for a world that would expect us to respond in anger? Blessed are the peacemakers seeking peace in a society that is always looking for a fight, particularly online. It's really easy to, and I find myself doing this as well, to to see the decay of the world around us morally 
and simply complain about it or just give up on the world. You find yourself doing the same sometimes. Uh, John Stott again helpfully makes the point, when our society goes bad, we Christians are so often throw up our hands in pious horror and reproach the non-Christian world. But should we not rather reproach ourselves? No one blames unsalted meat for going bad. It cannot do anything else. The real question is, where is the salt? Jesus continues, point number two, you are the light of the world. And from verse 14, we read these words, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it up on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. They may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus says, you are the light. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say you are to be the light. No, you're not to be the light. You are the light. If you're a Christian, you are light. You can't hide the light even if you wanted to. If you're a Christian, you're different. As much as light is from darkness. Diedrich Bonhoeffer makes the point, it's the property of the light to shine. What else can it do? That's why Jesus goes on to say, verse 14b, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, if you're a disciple listening to Jesus' words, your mind probably would have gone to Jerusalem, right? A city built on a hill. That's what it was known for. And some of the prophets of the Old Testament, including Isaiah, I spoke of how Jerusalem was to be like a light. God's people were like a light, but particularly Jerusalem set on a hill and the surrounding nations would be drawn to Jerusalem to worship the true and living God. No doubt, I reckon this is what the disciples would have thought of. A city on a hill, though, is not the city of Jerusalem, but the community of Jesus' disciples who listened to him. You're a town built on a hill whose light cannot be hidden. Uh, We generally take communion here about once a month uh, within the service. And and after we take communion, often we pray this prayer. It goes like this. May we who share Christ's body live his risen life. We who drink his cup bring life to others. We whom the spirit lights give light to the world. If you're a spirit-filled believer, that's if you're a Christian, you have the light of God, you are the light, and that light is to shine to the world. It's what light does. And then Jesus repeats the point with a different analogy. Take a look from verse 15. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. I'm not sure what the bowl is that we might seek to hide under, because you're the light. We are the light. Uh, It could be the fear of people. I don't want to offend people. I want to be loved. Uh, It could be deliberate conformity to the world around us, its values, its beliefs. 
But to do so is actually to starve the light of oxygen. And in the end, it will be extinguished. Unfortunately, we see it today in global Anglicanism. See, a good proportion of the global Anglican communion has walked away from the truth of the Bible. Conforming to the world's values and beliefs, not wanting to be persecuted for the truth. But it's not all hardship and persecution, for salt preserves and light dispels the darkness. Have a look at verse 16. It says, In the same way, let your light shine before others. Why? That they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. As you let your light shine, that is, as you live the norms of the kingdom, the Beatitudes, the countercultural blessed life, some will see. They will take notice and they will hear the gospel and they'll turn and praise your Father in heaven. I had a young guy, Morgan, who's recently started coming to youth group here. And he shared about God's story in him on Friday night. Uh, And not from a Christian family, and through a difficult primary school in which he became very socially anxious, he started going to Pacific Hills. And he said when he started going there, there was something different. The teachers there loved him like he had never been loved before. And the kids loved him too. And that experience of Christian community for him, and it's not, I'm not saying this is for everyone, but for him, helped him to turn to Jesus. He started going along to the Christian group there. He started going along to youth group and he came to know Jesus. And that's what Jesus says, doesn't he? A new commandment I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. This is how they will know that you are my disciples. How? If you love one another. So what might it look like for us in everyday Christian life? There's a variety of things and I'm sure you could think of it. But I want to say if you're working here, then not being lazy. Not being lazy when the boss is not around. Working diligently even if others aren't. Not stoking the fire by returning a heated email or social media post with one that provokes further anger. Being generous to your friends or your workmates. You might be the one, if you can afford it, you might be the one who shouts the coffees, right? You take the initiative, hey, I can grab you some coffees. Sam Chan talks about this in his book, um, How to Evangelise. Take a genuine interest in people's lives. Follow up what they've said from the week before. What are you doing on the weekend? Oh, great. And then ask them on the Monday how that was. That will be completely different. At work, greeting everyone, including the one that is not on your level at work. Whether someone is the cleaner or the manager you work with, it makes no difference. I think it's a good diagnostic question to ask, 
Do I know their names? Do I know their stories? I don't know whether you, whether you travel on the city by train, but you can imagine this situation when you walk through Central Station Tunnel and you see the homeless guy begging for money. Do you ever stop just to ask his or her name? Because there's something they need more than just food. They need to be loved, someone to stop to ask their name, to ask their story. It's how you love someone. So often uh, we feel the urge, I think, as well, to, in church, be relevant and attractive to the outsider, uh, to kind of make the music pumping or something. Now, I'm not against pumping music, right? But Jesus doesn't say, pump up the music and they will become followers of Jesus. No, he says, love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. We're to love one another. That's how we look different. Our history is testament to this. Um, we haven't thought up the idea of a hospital <laughs> caring for those who are sick and rejected. Of course, it was Christians, wasn't it? Basil of Caesarea in 369 AD. Basil himself was even part of the medical staff. And even lepers might be greeted by the bishop with a kiss, writes author and historian Tom Holland. Do you know that before Christianity was a thing, the Roman Empire saw nothing wrong with infanticide, that is the killing of children, that was norm. Aristotle approved of it. Wailing at the side of the roads or on rubbish tips, babies abandoned by their parents, Tom Holland writes. That was the norm. Until the emergence of Christians who rescued unwanted children. What does it look like today as a church to be different, to preserve a rotting world, to be light in the darkness? Well, there's a many and various ways, and we can chat about those things over afternoon tea, what it mo- uh, morning tea, what it mo- might look like individually, what it might look like corporately. But I think in a similar vein, it's valuing and upholding those, particularly at the beginning and end of life, which increasingly in our society longs to dismiss these people in the guise of choice or even compassion. I met a Christian lady at a cafe in Kenthurst when Jenny was there the other day, uh, and she runs an organisation which encourages parents, uh, sorry, encourages pregnant teens, rather, to keep their babies and supports them in the early years of raising them. Now, of course, there are many other various ways in which we can be salt and light in the world. And it's good to reflect on them. And I hope over morning tea you can do that. You can ask, what, what might it look like to be salt, to preserve our rotting world? What, what, it, what might it look like to be light, bringing the truth and dispelling the darkness? But let me finish. 
We began with this question, how should we live in an ever-increasing secular world? It's tempting to fly under the radar, isn't it? To live out our holy huddle. It's tempting to fling up our arms in despair at the state of our world. But Jesus says, and here's something remarkable, and you don't have a choice in this, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. That's what you are. You cannot help but hide that. That's what you are. Be who you are. Be different. And in doing so, some may taste the salt. They may see the light and turn and glorify your God in heaven. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for these words preserved in the Scriptures. We pray that if we are here today, those who have been enlightened by the truth of the Gospel, that you might simply help us to be who we are. Forgive us for the times when we don't. We don't live out who we are. Thank you that in Jesus We are forgiven, we are cleansed. But help us always to repent and to live out that life, that countercultural Christian life, that we might be salt and light in this world and people might come to glorify our God and Father. And we pray it in Jesus' name.